This podcast contains scenes of a graphic and violent nature. Listener discretion is advised. Allow me to say first and foremost that this is no diary. Contained herein are the research notes and natural philosophies of the erstwhile cleric, Radolf Burntwine, though the surname is long disused. In truth, I go by many names, as I find myself in many places, some of which populated by those who would take great pleasure in the summary execution of so notorious a blasphemer. The eponymous Radolf Institute is of relatively new advent, begun some few years ago without my consent by a trio of former apprentices and acolytes, founded with the express intent of chronicling, cataloging, and most importantly researching my findings abroad. It should be noted that I am no genius. Neither am I extraordinarily well studied in any particular subject. For complex publications on the topics herein, one must turn to the Institute. For they are the scholars, true academics all. In the following and all subsequent documents, I will at times draw erroneous conclusions, express confirmation bias, and in general, fail to comport myself in the manner of a proper philosopher. Fortunately, I was not brought squalling into this world to meet others' standards, and while the eponymous institute uses my works to begin their investigations, my experiments are largely for my own edification. Thus it has always been, and thus it will always be, even years after they've lost what incomprehensible motives drive them to listen to my ramblings. <coughs> in my travels I have accumulated a smattering of knowledge and skills, wildly inconsistent in depth and breadth. This is facilitated by the taking of apprentices to ease the burden of menial tasks, for no man grows alone, it would seem. Even the vagrant, which I seem to have become in my old age, must rely on the niceties of society, such as they are, to enable a lifestyle devoid of constant toil, for it is in time without work that we find the leisure of study. In years past, such leisure was made possible through tithe and donation, but that life is over now, and in its place is one of responsibility. For the Institute may bear my name, but their support comes at the cost of... Regular publication. It is in the drought of cases that I yearn for my days at the monastery. It could be said that the clergy find my works distasteful, to say the least. I was excommunicated from the Natonic Order following the publication of Bacteria and Parasitism, the Flaw in the Grand Design. An incisive treatise, if I say so myself, meant neither to injure the Order nor spur its followers into rebellion. But instead to call to attention a flaw in their narrative, to encourage research into the natural philosophies upon which the order claims to be founded. Needless to say, they were neither inspired nor enlightened by my weak prose, and while they did not hang me for a heretic, a mercy they have likely come to regret, they did strip me of my titles and honors, and cast me out of the paradise that I had helped to build. However, there are those who still believe it is the burden of the Church to face the difficult truths of creation. Though we are fewer and fewer, it seems, with each passing year. 
It is these, I shudder to call them believers, in whom I find hospitality and aid. Kindnesses that, if discovered, would garner punishments up to and including death. For the Church takes neither blasphemy nor excommunication lightly. I yet wonder, if I were to fall in the hands of my former colleagues, would the skin be flayed from my bones and tanned to bear the mark of the heretic as some long-forgotten cabals would have it? No. No such barbarity to be found in modern piety. I imagine I am left to my devices, so long as my works do not actively encourage dissent. Oh, dear. I suppose this has become a diary of sorts. It would seem that I am enough starved for the pleasures of conversation that I should greet even this cold contraption with the warmth and trust of an old friend. Ah, yes. <laughs> the machine. If you're listening to my voice rather than conjuring it from the written word, you might wonder how it has come to you. Why, the wonders of natural philosophy, my fair stranger. The wonders of natural philosophy. <laughs> oh, dear. Excuse me. I am a bit light-headed. What is my water? No matter. <clears throat> Some months ago, I and my current apprentice, Ian, came across a monastery named the Ululating Tongue, no doubt lost to the Nagafim. Evidence would suggest a shiga virus, but without a fresh body for necropsy, it will likely remain a mystery. In any case, this monastery was replete with all manner of sonic wonders. Instruments, machinery, acoustics. There seemed to be no end to the research. Notes found in private quarters refer to a god song. Some hymn or melody discovered by the monastery's founder. It seemed these brothers were laboring under the belief that god, likely Shiga, could be expressed in music. And that if such music could be perfected and spread through the populace, not unlike the Nagafim, they could bring about a mass enlightenment, an infection of a different sort. <sighs> In the end, I suspect the delusion under which they all labored brought their deaths. Shiga, after all, is not a forgiving god. All of this is to say that I harvested what I could from their notes, like any good field researcher and sent back what I could to the Institute for further examination. Among their machines, however, I discovered something wonderful. Most of their contraptions were novel but useless, with no potential beyond entertainment. But this, this, as I'm sure you are aware, stranger, is a marvel beyond compare. Using a hand crank to generate an electromagnetic charge and some manner of vibration converter, this device transforms sound into some kind of magnetic language. It then scribes this upon steel filament, and this wire can be fed into another similar device to hear the audio which was previously recorded. Fascinating. I am still in awe of its ingenuity. As too the brothers must have been, for they had constructed three of these prototypes, and another six of the relay. Needless to say, I wasted no time in sending all but one prototype to the Institute keeping the last for myself.
You see, age is catching up with me. My eyesight is not what it once was, and my hands have begun to shake. To say nothing of the headaches. <clears throat> As such, this device is something of a godsend, so to speak. With luck, one of our more enterprising students might improve upon the model. But for now, I will content myself in a form of transcription that is both easier on my vulnerabilities and impossible to intercept by those who may use my notes against me. Anyway, I had promised this was not a diary, and I have thus far broken my promise. I shall endeavor to keep my musings to a minimum in the future. But for now, I hope that you, dear stranger, can appreciate this, the first of many audio recordings to come. The following case study is the work of Radolf Boutwein, Ian Markovard assisting. <coughs> As this is my first case study using our new recording equipment, it shall be notated as the first of its series. At the time of this recording, three hours have passed since exposure to infected tissue and fluids. I shall document my symptoms, if any progress, trusting Ian to provide care as needed. I am so very, very tired now. Case number 001. Title, To Shepherd the Dead. Abstract. An outbreak of Mavetaviridae, Ravaricon, in an unnamed village near the Damahir River, resulted in thirteen deaths, six at the hands of the infected, a further six succumbing to late-stage infection. One suicide. One infected was isolated, examined, progression documented, and eventually terminated. See included blood samples marked Alpha, Beta, Delta, and Omega, corresponding to stages of infection, as well as brain tissue collected within five minutes of expiration. It would have been sooner, but the human skull is resilient. Heat-negative bacterial culture supplied to prevent further decay. Reports of vagrancy leading up to the inciting event led me to believe a neighboring village might have been the initial infection site. However, the suspected patient zero, non-resident sample not collected, is reported to have been capable of cognizant speech and rational behavior. So this is likely an isolated incident. For now. This does not preclude the possibility of a non-presenting carrier, or, laws forbid, a Homzek plague-bringer spreading his gift. Further case notes to follow. I am tired. I require rest, and a bath, and some manner of food. Preferably, something without meat.
Case number 001 continues. Introduction. Subject, Mavetta Viridae, Ravaricon. Also known as Ghoul Rot, Grave Plague, and Cold Fever. Viral Deific, Mavet. The Grave Plague is a manifestation of Mavet, a hover pertaining to death, particularly undeath as it is. Early symptoms include slowed heart rate and depressed organ function. This reduces blood flow, resulting in fatigue, visible pallor, and in cases where the point of infection is centered in the gastric system, jaundice. This progresses to a state nearly indistinguishable from death, save, of course, that the bodies begin to animate, as in life. Pathotype, Rav. Rav meaning hunger, the Ravic pathotype is bloodborne compelling and spreading through cannibalistic impulses. Infection begins when contaminated fluids enter the bloodstream through a wound, pass through a permeable membrane, or when infected tissue is ingested by an appropriate host. Serotype, Rekev. While technically a secondary effect of the virus's inhibition of blood flow, the most traumatic symptom of the Revericon subtype is the decay and decomposition of soft tissues, organs, and eventually the brain. Often such decay begins with the eyes, resulting in permanent vision loss. Festering lesions and seepage increase infection chance, as those seeking to aid may unwittingly infect themselves, even if not bitten. Locality. Unnamed Kemavec village, north of the Sothari border, 80 kilometers northeast of the Brotherhood of the ululating tongue, or at least what's left of it. 243 residents estimated. Case presentation. In the days preceding the initial outbreak, an unnamed vagrant had been seen in the areas surrounding the village. Though descriptions vary, commonalities suggest a white male, roughly 170 centimeters, long brown hair, crooked nose likely the result of multiple breaks, and an uncommon pallor. The vagrant was seen wearing a tattered, unseasonable cloak over a cream shirt, heavily stained by an unknown brown substance, presumed at least by this researcher, to be dried blood. The village elder, later patient 12, Varnal Dinch, a bald, phlebitic man whose breath could fell a Sulthari regiment, insisted the presumed patient Zero had been skulking through farmsteads for nearly two weeks leading up to the incident. Interviews suggested that vagrancy is not uncommon in the village, as the small road which runs west to east through what could generously be called the town centre eventually connects with the Kemov High Road and the Damahir River. As one might imagine, this leads to considerable foot traffic from those looking for a bed on their way to the Kemovec capital of Jostok. When confronted by the elder's youngest son, one Orlok Dinch, the vagrant seemed cordial, even mildly apologetic, but upon further inquiry, shifted into a maudlin hostility. When the young man attempted to restrain and calm the vagrant, he was bitten on the antecubital fossa, the elbow pit, to use the villager's vernacular. Needless to say, the vagrant escaped, last seen travelling north. 
which is where I suppose I'll be going. At least I'll be able to scrounge up a decent beer. Kemovich monks take few things as seriously as their drunkenness. Within the bleak stone walls of Kemovich churches, the word spirit truly lives up to its double meaning. Roughly sixteen hours after the altercation and the disappearance of the assailant, Orlok Dinch, now patient one, began to present symptoms. Notably, confusion, reduced motor function, shivers, memory loss, and fatigue. To the trained eye, these are all symptoms of hypothermia, and the villagers could not be faulted for drawing such a conclusion, living as they do on the southern border of Kemovec. However, with average daily temperatures in the mid-thirties centigrade, and the first frosts likely weeks away, hypothermia is something of a stretch. In truth, young Master Dinch was presenting the early stages of the breakdown of homeostatic regulation. His body was forgetting how to maintain proper temperature, hydration, and chemical balance. For reasons unknown, mavetaviruses trigger atypical immune responses. Therefore, more common viral symptoms are absent. Fever, inflammation, etc. The rarity of these viruses is a blessing. For without proper detection and treatment, mavetic infection often progresses to its natural conclusion. Or unnatural, as the case may be, and in fact certainly was, for patient one. Zilana Margov, patient two, began her initial infection not long after patient one. However, due to the <coughs> means of transmission and patient one's stage of infection at time of exposure, patient two's progression was slowed considerably. This was no doubt a contributing factor in her eventual recovery. Though the effects of this particular strain of mavetavirus on the reproductive systems is unknown. Mavetaviruses often report nerve damage, tissue degradation, and repeat secondary infections at the initial infection site. This suggests that childbirth may no longer be an option for the young miss. And she had spoken so dearly of the prospect. Not long after Miss Margolf's initial exposure, Patient 1's infection progressed to late stage. Pallor, delirium, and near-complete loss of fine motor function. This eventually led to Patient 1's apparent death. In truth, it is unlikely that brain function had ceased. Rather that the heart rate had slowed to a point where any outward observer would conclude that the patient had passed on. This is where my intolerance for local superstition must be made clear. This village, and presumably the surrounding area, participates in a funereal rite, which, while poetic, is a nightmare for any student of the natural philosophies. The deceased is dressed in finery, their lips smeared with honey, and then kissed by those closest to them. Were it not for this practice, patients 3 through 7 would never have been infected. Patients 8 through 11 would never have been bitten. And six people would not have lost their lives, screaming for mercy as they were torn apart by their friends and family. Know this, however symbolic, however long the tradition has persisted, do not exchange bodily fluids with the dead and dying.
Not long after the funeral, patients three through seven began presenting symptoms. These were the members of the Ditch family. Two brothers, a mother, a grandfather, and an uncle. While each case bore unique presentations, commonalities included loss of motor function, fatigue, and reduced heart rate. The seven days which followed saw the infected Dinch family fully progress to false death. Their bodies were removed to the local church to be prepared for yet more corpse kissing. I suppose it is fortunate that the final stage of infection began before the community had a chance to pay their respects, lest the entire village be wiped off the map and the nearby township of Bratkova, population 8,000, be reduced to rubble soon after. No. Instead, Avram Hulain, the local cleric, held a midnight mass with his two acolytes, Danesh Mastva and Timon Vostrod, for what remained of the Dinch family, an aunt, uncle, and four cousins. As young Master Vostrod adjourned to the study to collect the Velka, a local honey liqueur used in religious ceremony, he heard a commotion. Gasps, elation, screams, and violent struggle. Fearing the possibility of an attack from Nagific cultists, an increasingly rare sight with the spread of Netanism, but nevertheless a real threat, Timon peeked through a crack in the door. The poor child watched in horror as half the Dinch family disemboweled and devoured the other half, all while his priest and mentor dragged the shredded remains of his legs up the center aisle in bloody procession to the altar where he would ultimately bleed out, trying desperately to staunch his wounds with the white linens of his clerical vestments. Timon is catatonic at the time of this recording. His recovery will be long and uncertain. My heart goes out to him and those villagers who have taken his care upon themselves. While the Dinch family auto-cannibalized, Patient One's grave was found by Horesh Ulgin, a local smith, to be exhumed. Also fearing Nagific cultists, he ran to his forge to collect weapons, and while his fears were well-founded, his initiative cost yet more lives that might yet have been spared. Patient One was later seen attacking a traveler who had come in from the high road. The traveler fled, and it is unknown if he sustained injury. One can hope that this unwitting victim evaded attack entirely, or, though grim the thought, succumbed to his wounds before infection could take him. Ulgin mustered a force of men into a makeshift militia and began combing the town for signs of outsiders. After happening upon patient one, his men severed the boy's head from his body. Seeing a light on in the church, the militia approached with caution. Seeing the carnage within, Ulgin closed and sealed the doors, with Timon inside. Screams from the Margov house led the militia to find young Zilana, attempting to break down the door to her parents' room. Inside, her mother, father, sister, and brother were all tending wounds of varying severities given to them by the young miss. Still harrowed by their encounter with patient one and the scene wrought by the dinch horde, the militiamen subdued the girl and helped her family escape before locking her in a closet. 
The infected were restrained and tended by a local medicine woman named Sveta Ruga, who, even amid their worst fits of hostility, performed admirably in the face of overwhelming horror. I arrived in the village not long after the outbreak had been quelled by the local militia, and I use the term militia out of respect for their tenacity and willingness to do what must be done in moments of crisis. In truth, four men with axes do not a militia make, and for all of their bravery, all four of them were later seen, shaky hands clasped around mugs of bread water, eyes glassy and distant. Let it never be said that they did not do their duty, but let it also not be said that they did it with joy or without consequence. Treatment and outcome. Of the infected, only the Margov girl, patient two, and her parents, patients eight and nine, fully recovered with minimal complication. The only other and by far most notable survivor is patient seven, full name Garrig Dinch, uncle to young Orlock Dinch, our patient one. Seven progressed to final stages of infection, fed on the priest and still managed to recover. This is not the first instance of a final stage recovery from a Mavetta virus, but it is the first I've witnessed myself. Of course, the man is not well, neither physically nor mentally, but he lives and is blessed to do so, unburdened with overmuch memory of what his body has done. He has lost 60% of his sight to tissue damage, 30% of his fine motor skills to nerve damage, and while he does not suffer amnesia, his recall is severely impaired. Interviews with the surviving patients describe the illness in much the same way. Most notable is the certainty that one is cold, yet a persistent lack of any and all sense of temperature. Even a scalding cup of tea seems to garner no noticeable nervous response until tissue damage has taken effect, something discovered too late, when patient 8 guzzled water hot enough to bubble the skin. It is uncertain whether he will recover from his burns as well as he did from the virus. Another notable symptom is the total loss of coordinated motor function in later stages, while retaining lucidity, as though upon giving a command to your body, it decides it would rather not and simply does something else entirely. Patient 7 describes what he remembers of the final stages of infection, not unlike extreme drunkenness, total loss of awareness of self, and the inability or possible lack of desire to control one's actions. This coupled with an extreme hunger, yields a predictable, if grisly, result. After my arrival, I was taken to the pest tent, where the infected had been restrained, for their own good and that of the village at large. There I became acquainted with the village elder, later patient 12, as well as the other soon-to-be survivors. It was at this time that I began collecting samples and performing preliminary exams. With the necessities taken care of, I set about tending to the wounded. I was informed by the local medicine woman that hanging tear, a local herb, seemed to soothe the worst of the symptoms. After some experimentation, I learned that hanging tear stimulates a febrile response after ingestion. From this, I surmised that free root, which has similar pyrexic properties and stimulates blood flow, could make a good pairing. This proved rather effective in staving off the worst of the symptoms, and seemed to grant brief windows of lucidity, in which I was able to gather information 
regarding the personal experiences of the infection itself. Of particular note is patient 12. Once the patients had been seen to, the village elder approached me about funeral services. When I insisted upon cremation, he thankfully assented with the caveat that he would like to perform the village's traditional funereal rites for his boys. I refused, vehemently, but he would not hear it. The man had lost everything. He had little desire to go gently into the twilight of his years, a widower and father to three dead children. I knew I could not stop him, and the villagers had little motivation to do aught but grieve. So I did what any good philosopher should endeavor to do in the face of madness. I asked to document it. See addendum for details. Conclusion The village was subject to an outbreak of Mavedaviridae, Revericon. Total casualties, 13. Total infected, 9. Key diagnostic criteria. Loss of homeostasis. Sluggish or absent reflexes. Subdued emotional response. Fatigue and pallor progressing into false death. Reanimation and cannibalism. Protective equipment. Recommend thick clothing, long sleeves, protective lenses, and face mask to limit exposure to fluids. Gloves and immediate washing can prevent later accidental infection. Treatments. A tea of hanging tear and free root may slow progression, encourage blood flow, and prevent nerve damage in late-stage infection. Further study needed. Advise anticoagulants, stimulants, and pyrexics. No known cure beyond letting the infection run its course. Estimated mortality, 35%. Next steps. This is not the first settlement to provide me with reports of a strange vagrant matching that description. I must pursue this man. There is every possibility he is an unwitting carrier from a Vetiviridae Revericon. And if so, he should be brought to the Institute for testing and treatment. The villagers have offered tremendous hospitality in exchange for my services. They have also unwittingly provided me with my next destination. There are rumors of a woods witch in the forest to the north. A delight, to be sure. Whether charlatans or genuine philosophers, hermits of this ilk always have the most fascinating research. Mostly collections of chicanery disguised as ritual, but some few bear secrets. Alchemical probiotic, and even eldritch. I should very much like to meet this Gudrun of the Wetwood. Thank you for listening to this pilot episode of The Heresies of Radolf Brentwine. This series is written, edited, and performed by myself, Zachary Golden, and published by Slapdash Studios, in association with Realm FM. You can find new episodes on the first of the month and bonus content on our Patreon at patreon.com thorbcast. Once it's finished, the official website can be found at thorb.info, and you can reach out for questions, feedback, or advertising opportunities at admin at slapdashstudios.com. Thank you again for listening. Dear stranger.